Everyone's quiet already. That was wonderful. Thank you to Sarah for reading such a, a long passage of scripture this morning. Um, it's a big passage. I've, I've chosen three take-home po- points that we'll hopefully be able to uh, take from today's passage. So there'll be a few things that we um, don't delve further into. Um, I must admit I was, I was still a bit nervous. I've only done this once or twice here and as I left home today, I went through the mental tick-off lists. You know, have I got my notes? Have I got my drink bottle? Have I got my USB? And I got to church, and the one thing I'd forgotten was my shoes. Um, so luckily, I did manage to have time to swing home and, and get my shoes. And hopefully, that's the biggest blunder I make today. Today, we continue reading through the book of First Samuel. Many of you will be up to date with the narrative, having heard it on on previous occasions, but I want to briefly recap on some of the key features that are going to be important um, for today's message. We first met Saul back in chapter 9. He was a tall, young farm boy searching for his donkeys. He was tall and attractive, but he didn't seem to have a lot of ambition. He didn't even know who Samuel was, the great prophet and leader in Israel. When out of the blue, this farm boy is anointed as king, he is a little bit surprised, to say the least. When the time comes to present him publicly, he runs away and hides like a small child. But the one who begins, it would seem, with so much humility, goes on to get his first taste of power and glory in chapter 11. Empowered by the Spirit of God, he rallies the Israelites and goes on to defeat the Amalekite invaders. This gives Saul authority and popularity amongst the people. The chant would have gone up, Saul, 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 Saul. And it would seem, it would seem that he began to foster just a little bit of affection for this throne. We first start to see some cracks in his character in chapter 13. Saul makes an unlawful sacrifice and receives his first rebuke from Samuel. His dynasty will now no longer continue. Nevertheless, he still continues to fight Israel's battles and to do so valiantly. Then in chapter 15, he disobeys God's orders regarding the total destruction of the Amalekites and their flocks. We read that the valuable animals he kept, and he erects a statue to his own honour. Samuel turns up on the scene, and he issues Saul a second stinging rebuke. Not only will his dynasty not continue, but his own reign will be cut short and given to another. Saul pleads for forgiveness, but he also pleads that Samuel might not disgrace him before the people. And he says, please honour me now before the elders of my people and before Israel. It would seem that Saul's desire to be honoured by man is perhaps equal or on par to his desire to receive forgiveness from God. Initially, Saul was reluctant to become king, but he's very comfortable with the throne now. It would appear that the lust for power and prestige has not only sprouted in his heart, but it has grown and it's starting to blossom. So this is a great time for David to enter the story. We heard last week, the story last week, sorry. David, a shepherd with a handful of stones, faces off with Goliath, a man who by today's standards, he himself would be classified as a weapon of mass destruction. But the power is God's, and and with God's help, David wins the day, and he puts the entire enemy army to flight as they run away in fear. 
Now, for Israel, the Philistine army was not just a threat to their lifestyle or to their economy, it was a threat to their very existence. And day after day, for 40 days, as those two armies faced off, this was hanging over their heads like a dark cloud of doom and despair. And then David slays the giant and the sunlight breaks through. And this brings us to today's scripture. As Saul and David return from the battle, it's no wonder that the women come out and they erupt with praise. Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. This is why we ask for a king, they say, so that he, might, he could lead our army in battle and defeat our enemies. And Saul has delivered. Saul has slain his thousands. What a king! And David, what a warrior! He has slain his tens of thousands. The numbers, of course, are grossly exaggerated, and they reflect the celebrations of a crowd, not any dark or sinister conspiracy or plot or treason. But to Saul, the threat is immediately apparent. He knows that God desires to remove him from the throne and to replace him with another. And so now we have a king who loves the throne but has been rejected by his God, looking with jealousy at a boy who has followed his God and has been enthroned in the praise of the people, so to speak. What more can he get but the kingdom, Saul exclaims. Have you ever stuffed up? I'm not talking about the time you rear-ended someone else's car. I'm talking about the time that you put your desires ahead of the mandate of your king. Think about it for a second. Think of an example. When have you placed your desires ahead of the mandate of your king? Okay, I want you to hold that thought. We can feel sorry for Saul. He's not in an enviable position. He may be a king in Israel, but he has not pleased the king in Israel, the Lord God Almighty. And Saul has been given notice that his term is coming to an end. What is the first thing that you do when you find yourself in a hole? Wait, I'll rephrase. What is the first thing that you should do when you find yourself in a hole? Anyone? When you find yourself in a hole, stop digging, the saying goes. And the saying exists because so often we don't stop digging. Saul is in a hole. His sins have disqualified him from the throne, but oh, he loves the throne. So what is Saul going to do? Many years earlier, Samuel the prophet had delivered a similar rebuke to Eli, the high priest at the time. Eli, because of his sin, had disqualified himself and his family line from continuing in the high priestly role. Eli is confronted by his sin, but he accepts the judgment. He says, reading from 1 Samuel 3.18, It is the Lord, let him do what seems good to him. Now, Now the Lord uses Samuel the prophet again, this time to deliver his message to Saul. But will Saul be willing to relinquish his throne? No, he will not. Saul loves his throne. He loves, he loves it more than he loves God. And he will do anything to keep it. What futility, we think. Does he think he can fight against God? Saul is in a hole, so he picks up his shovel, and oh boy, does he dig. In his effort to keep the kingship, he adds the following offences to those he has already committed. Charge number one, a broken promise. It appears that Saul had promised his daughter in marriage to David. 
When the two armies face off, David asks, what will be done for the man who slays this giant? And the answer from all the soldiers is, the king's going to give his daughter in marriage to the guy who slays the giant. Saul appears to have forgotten about this promise, but later on in this chapter, we see he does offer his eldest daughter, Mirab, in marriage to David. Of course, the whole thing is part of a ploy to have David killed by the Philistines, uh, but he does offer. David humbly regards himself as unfit to marry the king's daughter, but he doesn't explicitly refuse the offer. And reading from verse 19, it would seem that a wedding, a marriage date, had perhaps even been set, although Saul, again, never delivers. Let's read it again. But at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Maholothite. Ouch. Charge number two, multiple counts of attempted murder. We see two, possibly three occasions where Saul attempts to drive his spear through David. Charge number three, one count of attempting to solicit the service of others to commit murder. We see at the start of chapter 19, he tells his servants uh, to kill David. The fourth and final charge, three counts of child abuse in the form of emotional harm. What sort of father facilitates the romance of his daughter to a guy that he is trying to kill? And then he arranges for his other daughter to marry this guy, all the while he's still trying to kill him. They get married, and Michal loves David. All the while, Saul is still trying to kill him. What a way to treat your daughters. What about his son, Jonathan? Saul abuses his influence as a father when he asks his son, Jonathan, to kill his very best friend, David. Lies, deceit, murderous rage and abuse. And where does it get him? First we read, going from chapter 18, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David. And then we read, verse 15, he stood in fearful awe of him, i.e. he was very afraid of David. Then we read, verse 29, Saul was even more afraid of David. Saul is spiralling further and further down. By the end of chapter 19, he is lying naked on the ground. Why is David seemingly untouchable? How is it that all of Saul's efforts are frustrated? Back to verse 12. We'll we'll read it in uh, a bit more full context. And Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had departed from Saul. Saul placed his desires ahead of the mandate of his king, the king. I asked you before, Have you ever set your desires ahead of the mandate of this same king, your king? I hope your experience was a brief one. I hope you heeded the rebuke and let go of your little throne. But all too often, aren't we like Saul? We stand before the throne of the Lord Almighty who asks us to surrender all. We sing, come and behold him, the one and the only. We praise him but we go on holding on to our little throne. We grasp it tighter in our hand. We try and hide it behind our back, also that we might hold on to it for just a little longer. And so we stand in the presence of a jealous and all-knowing God. And we dig that hole a little deeper. 
Are you still holding on to your little throne? What has it cost you so far? How long will you keep digging? Let it go. For the love of your king, let it all go. The day is hot. The soldiers are marching back from the battle. He pauses to reach for his flask and he watches as the procession moves along and he can hear the crowd chanting, David, 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 David. David had slain a giant. David had brought about a great victory. He finds his flask and he takes a swig because he watches the soldiers carry David on their shoulders. They had once carried him like that, but David is the man of the hour now. David is a star. David is the Darren Lockyer of the Broncos. He's the Christine Haar of MasterChef. He's the Guy Sebastian of Australian Idol, all rolled into one. David is centre stage and all eyes are on him. A second swig from the flask to quench his thirst. And then Jonathan puts his flask away and resumes the march. He had once been in the limelight, he remembers. He, Jonathan, had attacked a whole Philistine garrison. He'd killed 20 men and put the entire Philistine army to flight. He'd delivered Israel's first victory against the Philistines. The men had carried him on their shoulders that day. They had chanted, Jonathan, Jonathan, Jonathan. But that counted for nothing now. His limelight had faded. He was yesterday's hero and David was today's rising star. The above account is just a fictitious, imaginative reconstruction. Uh, we're, we're not even sure if Jonathan was there when Saul and David come back from defeating Goliath. We know he was there with David just after the battle. But I want you to put yourself in Jonathan's shoes. David has scored the last goal, the winning goal. But you scored the first goal, the goal that turned the tide. You exercised great faith and courage when you attacked the Philistine garrison, but now David is the talk of the town. For the next week, all you hear about, all anyone talks about, is how David slew the giant. For the next month, all conversations all still seem to go back to that battle. How are you feeling in all of this? Is jealousy going to start to sprout in your heart? We are so good at being jealous. We are so good at coveting the vain glory, the praises of men. Think of a time when you came a close second. Did you ruminate on it? Did you fantasize, oh, if only I had been first, how good it would have been? What about when you overhear someone else getting praise for something that you are actually really good at, something that you take pride in? Sally says to Jenny, oh, Jenny, these are the best brownies I have ever tasted. And you think, has she tasted my brownies? What about my brownies? My brownies are the best. We love the praise of men. Even in the church, we can play these silly, sinful games. Why? Because we love to be first. The Apostle John, in his third epistle, he writes to believers and he warns them about a certain Diotrephes who, quote, loves to be first. Nothing is said about this guy being a heretic or, or grossly immoral, but this guy, in his zeal to be number one, is cutting the believers off from the loving nurture of the Apostle John. 
is Diotrephes one of a kind? Do we have Diotrephes in our churches today? Do we have people in the church who bring harm to the church as they seek their own self-importance? Jonathan might well have struggled with pride and jealousy, but if he did, he appears to have lent on God and in God's strength overcome the temptation. We don't see Jonathan consumed by the same petty, selfish madness that consumes his father. You know, if Saul had reason to be jealous of David, Jonathan had more. At least the women who sing David's praises credit Saul with something. If Saul had reason to be threatened by David, did Jonathan have any less? The same throne that Saul fears losing is the same one that Jonathan too will lose. But Jonathan shows a humility that says, I can rejoice in another's success. A humility that says, I don't need to be first. A humility which cares more about the people than about his person, cares more about the kingdom than about his kingship. The tune of Jonathan's humility has not actually yet reached its crescendo. It's going to shine brighter still in later chapters. But I want to draw attention to it here because I want you to know that if you're someone who struggles with toxic jealousy, then you need God-given humility. Whether it's on the field or in the office, at the pub or even in church, jealousy was not a part of God's design for you. It is not a tool that we can use to get ahead. Spiritually, it is a shackle that drags us down, and we need God-given humility. So point number one from today's message is a call to surrender your throne. Point number two is that humility, God-given humility, overcomes jealousy. Now, from Jonathan's position of humility, we see him go on to accomplish something quite distinguishable, which will become our third and final take-home lesson from today's passage. But I want to start with his sister, uh, Michal. Both Michal and Jonathan are related to Saul by blood. Both Michal and Jonathan are bound to David in love. They are inevitably embroiled in the fallout between Saul and David, and it's time to choose sides. I want to ask you, is choosing sides something that you are good at? Can you make the right choice? Can you work out who's in the wrong, who's in the right, who's being reasonable, who's had an unfair slog? The roster gets released at work. Inevitably, someone is not happy. You look at the roster and you're like, ah, they got the short end of the straw there, didn't they? And you, you, know, you, you console them a little bit. Or maybe you look at the roster and you're like, actually, that's a really fair roster. They're just being unreasonable. And when you see the guy who put the roster together, you say, hey, nice work on the roster. Hey, sorry, so-and-so is not happy with it. Look, they're just hard to please. What about in the extended family? You hear that uh, two members have had a disagreement. Uh, but you know what the issues are. And you pick up the phone Hey, Fred, yeah, no, I heard about such and such. Hey, look, don't worry about it, mate. Look, they're always being pushy like that. Michal and Jonathan were both good at choosing sides. They can see that Saul is being totally unreasonable and that David needs a fair go. And they both make the right choice, in a sense, by choosing to support David. But Jonathan makes a better choice. Let's look at Michal first. It would seem that when Saul decided to send men to watch David's house to capture him, Michal somehow becomes aware of the plot and she warns David, helps him get away. Then she even creates a distraction. She puts a, an image or some versions might read an idol in the bed 
um, says he's sick, um, buys a bit of time. The whole mention of an idol here raises questions. Where did it come from? What was it used for? Um, we're not going to delve into that today. If you've got interest, um, feel free to have a chat after the service. But David makes good his getaway, and Saul is in a really foul mood. Michal, come here, he says. Oh, I haven't scared my daughter, have I? <laughs> Why did you do this, he says. Busted. Michal is in hot water. Dad, he tried to kill me. Oh, good move. That'll get you out of trouble, Michal. Or is it a good move? To start with, it's a lie. It's a very easy lie because it's very easy to say the worst to people about those they hate the most. They're, they're likely to believe it. But what are the implications for the lie? Saul has probably already been looking for a reason to justify his baseless anger against David. Now he's told that David has threatened to kill his daughter. If they didn't get along beforehand, this ain't going to help. I don't want to be too critical of Michal here. She was facing a very short-tempered man who had a habit of throwing spears at people. Michal's lie aims at her self-preservation, but Jonathan's courage, as we shall see, aims at reconciliation. We read earlier that Saul had asked Jonathan to kill David. Jonathan warns David, and then he goes to Saul. Now again, not being too hard on Michal, the situations are not identical, but I want us to see that when we come across conflict... Seeking justice is good, but there is a higher path still. It's good to stick up for the oppressed, to help the downtrodden. Don't hear me say otherwise. But we can go one step further. Jonathan goes to Saul and he speaks well of David. It's risky. It might not work. And it doesn't always. Stay tuned for that one. But Jonathan speaks well of David to Saul. And with gentleness, he calls out Saul's sin And he brings about a change of heart. Repentance, that is. Jonathan then reconciles them. In verse, uh, sorry, in these seven verses at the start of chapter 19, he starts in Saul's presence. Then he goes to David. Then he goes back to Saul. Then to David. And then he brings David and Saul together and he reconciles them. Jonathan is a peacemaker. You don't see someone like that very often. I asked you before, are you good at picking sides? You probably are. The real question is, are you good at reconciling sides? Are you more likely to talk to the underdog and to encourage them that they're in the right and they should stick up for themselves? Mate, that other guy is being so unreasonable. Don't let him get away with it. Do you fan the flame of the conflict? Or are you likely to approach the other party and say, Hey, come on, man. Give him a break. This ain't right. The first option, the first option, it's safe. You will win yourself a friend for sure. The second option, it's not safe. But it manifests the character of Christ and you may win a soul. Friends, I want to conclude by saying that we live in a world that is just like the world of David and Saul and Jonathan This is a world that is full of petty thrones, vain egos, with conflict at every bend. But we can rise above it by fixing our eyes on Jesus. You see, Jesus had a throne, 
and not just any throne, but he was enthroned in the glories of heaven. And yet, for the good of others, he left his throne. We read in Philippians 2, 6-8, to Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He saw us fighting, fighting against each other, fighting against God, and he left his throne to walk the road of Calvary. The crowd had not been chanting his praises that morning. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There was no cheering or glory that day. He wasn't carried on their shoulders. No, he carried on his shoulders their cross. Sorry, he carried their cross on his shoulders. He carried our cross on his shoulders, our sin on his shoulders. And in humility, he walked that road that we might be reconciled, reconciled with each other and reconciled with God. And so it is written, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. If you are holding on to your throne, it's time to let it go. Don't succumb to jealousy but to repentance. God has not called you to status but to service. Not to luxury, but to lowliness. Not to power, but to meekness. And not to glory. Not of this world, no, but to humility. Saul chooses the path of jealousy. He covets glory, and he ends up naked. Jonathan chooses the path of humility, and in due course, He fades from the narrative. But the peacemaker has shown that he is not a son of Saul. He is a son of the Lord Almighty. And his portion now resides in his father's house. And his present glory eclipses any earthly throne. May you be known among your friends, among your family, in your workplace and in the church as a peacemaker, a son of the Most High God.